Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Hi, everybody. We're really happy to be back at Roma, part of it. You know, I have to remind people from Toronto who make pitches to get their stories on the air all the time. We're not TVT, we're TVO. And it's very nice to see so much of O in this room right now. So, having said all of that, let's introduce our three guests here who need no introduction in this room. Uh, But I'm going to do it anyway. Ontarians who live in rural communities face significant barriers accessing health services. With us now to discuss that and what we might do about it, we're going to welcome the Mayor of Westport, at the head of the Rideau Canal, Chair of Roma, there's Robin Jones. Doc- oh, in- individual applause for each, I love this. It's Robin. Uh, Dr. David Savage is here. He is the Assistant Professor at NOSM. Is it really awesome, NOSM? <laughs> That's what they say. Northern Ontario School of Medicine, he's also an emergency physician, Dr. Savage. And Michael Nolan is here. He's a chief paramedic in the county of Renfrew in Eastern Ontario. Michael, thank you for being here today. Great. Couple of housekeeping matters just before we start here. Uh, My wife is a health policy consultant, and I believe in the past she has done some consulting for NOSM, so we put that out there in the interest of full disclosure. And second thing is, I think we've got, you know, we've got a decent chunk of time for our conversation here. So I think what we want to do is we want to lay out what some of the issues are that people are having in more rural parts of the province and then talk about some of the ideas that you folks are kicking around to to try to make some headway on this. So, Mayor Jones, let's start with you. We are literally uh, a hot skip and a jump away from a whole lot of hospitals on University Avenue in downtown Toronto, some of the best in the world. You don't quite have it that way in your neck of the woods. What's it like there trying to access care? So thanks very much for that question, Stephen. The, the first of the challenge that Roma has in any discussion like this is to help the Ontario government understand rural is different. Thank you. <laughs> the problems may be the same, lack of access to primary care, lack of access to mental health support, lack of access to hospitals, but how it impacts us in rural Ontario is much different. Uh, For instance, access to primary care, our our doctors are uh, leaving the practice in rural Ontario four times faster than the city. So we don't have a lot, four times faster. To replace a, a doctor, in rural Ontario, they carry such a big caseload that our research shows that you really need three doctors to replace the one. Well, it's hard to attract one doctor into rural Ontario, let alone three to pick up the people who are on the roster. When you are in rural Ontario and you are not feeling well and you do not have primary care in your community, you either stay home and, and just try and get through it or you go to the closest ER, that's your only option. And when you get to that ER and it's closed, then your travel burden just explodes. I have been to your glorious hospital in Thunder Bay. They call it the Tajma Hospital. (laughs) It looks fantastic. You would think that just by looking at it, 
getting access to care would be a breeze. Is that the case? No, <laughs> definitely, definitely not the case. Um, like, like every eMERGE department in Ontario and throughout Canada, we have huge delays, long wait times. We've had significant issues with nursing staff. Um, nurses have left the, the emergency nursing profession in, in droves since the onset of the COVID pandemic. Um, so we're still playing catch up to get enough nurses. Um, our, our staff at Thunder Bay is relatively good from a physician perspective, but if you go to almost any other emergency department throughout Ontario and Canada, they are actively recruiting five to ten physicians across the board. So there's a huge lack of, of emergency physician supply across Canada and specifically in, in rural communities. Okay. Mike, after you take a sip of that water, I want to find out from you in eastern Ontario, what's the issue there? Well, certainly the, the major issue, certainly in the county of Renfrew and across eastern Ontario, is lack of access to primary care physicians. In Renfrew County, we're sitting at about 30% of the population do not have a family doctor. And we know that uh, having a family doctor reduces the incidence of disease, the amount of time it takes to recover, uh, but it also um, results when you don't have a family doctor in calling 911, or as Robin said, uh, calling paramedics to come to your home and provide an assessment, maybe some reassurance. Uh, and it really leaves you in the lurch. And um, recognizing that those hospitals that you may be going to are already busting at the seams uh, due to short staffing, but also the number of people with advanced age with our baby boom population is continuing to grow despite the fact we're in this echo phase of the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of what the wait times are like where you are? Because you know, if, if let's say you have to wait three, four hours, maybe more in a downtown Toronto hospital to get seen, What's it like where you are? Yeah, so I think three to four hours to be seen in a Toronto hospital is actually quite good. I think mm. that's on the low end of the, the wait times. In, in Thunder Bay, there's six to seven hours. Um, I've come on at 5.30 in the morning for a 5 a.m. shift, and I've had patients who've been waiting 12 hours to be seen. Do you think, this is coming right at you, do you think there are people needlessly dying in this province because they don't get access to emergency care fast enough? I think there are. And it comes from a few different perspectives. One of it, lack of 911, lack of paramedic care, uh, lack of primary care and inability to see these patients and actually manage their chronic conditions. And then they come into emergency departments and unfortunately there's data that shows some of them leave without being seen. So there's a, there's a, a nice report put on by Health Quality Ontario that shows the rate of people leaving Ontario emergency departments has gone up significantly over the past couple of years. Can I get you out on that, Michael? Do you, do you see do you see people dying who don't need to die because they don't get access to either paramedics or other emergency services in time? Absolutely. And we have a crisis in Ontario like I've not seen in my 30-year career. We have older adults without a family doctor who are simply trying to get a prescription refilled and have nowhere to turn other than going to this already overfilled emergency department. We have people uh, dying in the hallways of the hospitals waiting for care. Uh, and for the paramedics who are also in offload delay for entire shifts at a time, we have people waiting longer and longer for paramedics to provide them acute care for heart attacks, strokes, uh, and other medical emergencies where uh, they absolutely would not have died 10 years ago as a result. You've mentioned this report already, so let me put the name of it out there. Fill the gaps closer to home. What was the urgency in getting this report done? Well, the urgency, so if we, we can back up to the first report we did a couple of years ago, we spent a lot of time finding out from rural Ontario politicians what they felt their community needed to come through COVID. And there was five themes, um, but one of them is digital connectivity, 
housing, and the third one was access to health services. Um, so the point that you made about the, the amazing, some of the best in the world hospitals are five minutes away from us, and they have a long wait. Well, in rural Ontario, we have 525,000 people without primary care. And when those people don't have primary care and they go to the hospital, at least in Toronto, the hospitals are open. So, you know, that's a significant difference for us in rural Ontario. Can we pick up on that? Why have we heard so many stories of so many ERs closing so often as we did this past year? Yeah, thanks, Steve. So, so there's a few issues. One is that, is that there's an insufficient number of nurses to actually staff of many of these emergency departments. So I've been collecting data on this for the past two years, and probably the most common issue is lack of nursing staff. As I said, nurses are leaving the profession in droves. Um, so lack of nursing is probably the biggest one. Um, and just to, just to play on, on, on to what uh, Robin was saying is that when these departments are closed and you have to travel to the next closest ER, it actually puts a burden on that emergency department as well. So, so some of these emergency departments in these rural communities are actually facing, I wouldn't say double the volume that they normally would, but definitely an increased volume from all the communities that have actually had closures within their communities. So. Michael, what would you add to that in terms of your experience on why we've seen so many ER closures this past year? Yeah, certainly the shortage of nurses has had a, had a huge impact. There's also significant stresses within the system uh, for the physician group. Uh, there's a considerable amount of contract nursing going on uh, across the province, and that lack of stability uh, also reduces the throughput of patients and arguably the quality of care. Uh, imagine always having new staff churning through what is arguably the most uh, uh, risky place in a hospital, and in fact, in the entire healthcare system, when you don't have a team-based approach and you don't have the cadence that you need to ensure high-quality, timely care. It's backing up the system for the paramedics. We're seeing that, but we're also seeing a lack of confidence from the public as to whether the hospital is going to be open and whether the staff will be there to care for them in a reasonable amount of time. Mayor Jones, I talked to people at Queen's Park who say we're spending $81 billion a year on health care in the province of Ontario. That surely ought to be enough to have a decent system. Well, it well it's interesting that you quote that amount of money because in rural Ontario, we pay... $481 million a year towards that amount, and yet five, over 500,000 people don't have access to primary care. We've had 600 ED closures in the past year. So I, I, it, it's, I think it's a conversation that we need to have, and part of the reason we did this research is to go back to where I started. We need to make sure that Queen's Park knows the solutions for us are different than in an urban area. So it's not a contest between uh, what we have is more serious than what is in urban. But we do, did need to do the data and the, and the evidence and the research to demonstrate that what we're hoping for is, uh, to, is to work with the ministry to help develop an integrated, comprehensive health plan that takes into consideration the differences in rural Ontario and ensures that rural Ontario have the same access to health care as they do everywhere else. Equitable. It doesn't have to be equal, but we need to be able to get our people treatment and help when they need it. Michael, how about for you? Yeah, I think, you know, this notion of equity and equitable access to care uh, is something that, as you alerted, you know, you, you hear in the hallway, well, you've chosen to live there. So why would you expect the same as your, as your suburban or urban neighbours? Uh, or that's what, you, that's what you're paying for, is that level of service. And as a paramedic chief, you know, that, that could not be more offensive, frankly, because a life is a life. Mm -hmm. uh, a taxpayer is a taxpayer to many of the people in this room. 
and we believe strongly that uh, they deserve equal care, high quality care, and access to that care. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the exact same service. We may be using technology to extend care. We might be able to find other doors into the healthcare system to be able to support uh, equity and diversity in the way that care is provided. But it remains a significant challenge and not only the health disparity, but when you look at the health outcomes and the average age uh, of an Ontarian in the urban versus the rural center, uh, rates of smoking, obesity, activity, uh, access to exercise programs, there are disparities across the system that leave rural Ontarians at a significant disadvantage. I have heard it said though, David, that you could double the spending on healthcare tomorrow, go from 81 to $162 billion, you would not get a system that was twice as good because there's too many problems in the system. Is that true? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think a lot of the, a lot of the issue um, surrounds sort of the planning and where we focus our dollars, right? We, we know that if we want to increase the number of, say, family physicians in a rural community, we don't need to be recruiting from southern Ontario and from large urban centres, right? Nausam University is based on, on the philosophy that if you want to staff uh, your community for, with health care providers, you actually have to go to that community and actually recruit from that community. Is that working? It, it seems to be, although we're still at a huge deficit in northern Ontario. I think the doctors you train are still staying in the north? Yeah, so, so the data does show that many of them are staying. Now, there's no restrictions on where physicians go and live, right? And so one of the, one of the things that they've been trying to do is, is keep people in the north, introducing early sort of family medicine uh, experiences to get them to stay in the north. But there's no restrictions on where they, on where they work, so... Tell me about, we know, because we've mentioned it a few times here, about how much money is coming out of Queen's Park for healthcare. What about your municipality? Do you have line items in your budget for healthcare as well, and what are you spending? Well, let me talk about um, the, the upper tier, because a lot of the, the long-term care homes and things like that are the responsibility in, in a two-tier um, municipality. Um, and so some of those challenges uh, in long-term care homes, and I'm sure I'm going to see a lot of head nodding, is that when the um, government, when the federal government ruled that the 1% uh, 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 restriction on, on salaries uh, was unconstitutional, the uh, nurses, those nurses were quickly bumped up to the, what they should have received over the two years that that was in place. Well, that filters down because people would say, well, that didn't impact in municipal services. But it certainly did because it's a retention issue. So we pay a significant amount, particularly for our long-term care homes and for public health. Um, and yet we have no say on how those dollars are spent. And one of the things that's very important to rural Ontario, if we're going to be part of the solution, we want the health teams to succeed. But if they don't have rural um, people on their health teams themselves, then how do they know what the issues are? So in our report, we're asking for rural representation on every health team. It's, it seems to be a, a door that's shut and locked and barricaded, and there's people standing there, they don't want to let us in, in rural Ontario. And we're just saying, let's pilot it in a couple of places mm -hmm. and see how bad could it be if you've got the mayor of here or the uh, community health person from here on the health team, but representing the municipality and saying, this is what's going to work here. Because as they, as they deliver the programs, because that's where the money is going to flow through, that's where the decisions are going to be taken, 
it, uh, when it comes to something like mental health, the number of times that people in this room have heard, well, you know, there's no waiting list. We don't have anybody sort of referred to us from your community. Or they say, well, we have nowhere to actually set up our office if we come to your community. We can fix that. We can find places for them. But if we're not on the health teams, then how are we making that? How can we compel them to listen to us when we bring forward really solid suggestions that will help in our communities? Can I ask you a bit of a smart aleck follow-up here? You can be smart aleck. Okay. The current government's party has the vast majority of the seats in rural Ontario. If you can't get representation with this group in the way that you want it, presumably it's hopeless then. Is that fair? Well, I wouldn't say it's hopeless because we haven't had the data to show them this is rural Ontario, this is why we're different, and this is why we need to have solutions that work for us. We'll talk in a year. We'll talk in a year. What do you, what, what do you think is going to be different a year from now? Well, I don't know because people have asked me, what do you think the response from the minister is going to be? And, and my feeling is, why wouldn't they want to work with us? Why wouldn't they take our report and say, these things will work in rural Ontario? Some of our recommendations don't include adding more doctors, but they, they have uh, other approaches to helping um, satisfy primary care in Ontario. Michael, I want to ask you about something that we know urban Ontario really suffers with, but I think the untold story, it's now beginning to be told better, is that in rural Ontario, opioids is a crisis as well. What does that look like in your neck of the woods? Yeah, certainly um, in rural Ontario, and you know, we've got uh, some people in the audience here from Cochrane District, Timmins, for example, they've had extraordinarily high opioid-related uh, uh, emergencies now for many years. And they've done some very innovative programs um, with the paramedics and with the mental health and addictions workers about engaging people uh, very early on after a crisis and doing so and getting them into very valuable programs to get them on Suboxone or Sublocade, drugs that allow people to be able to work through the mental health-related issues to the addictions. For us in Renfrew County, um, uh, we've had an extraordinary year. Uh, but it, unfortunately, it's been extraordinarily bad. And, you know, an average year, when we talk about it statistically, is somewhere between eight and 10 opioid-related deaths a year. Uh, we hit 40 this year. So that is an extraordinary experience for us with a population of about 100,000. I know municipalities, especially rural municipalities across Ontario, have their own stories. And when we start adding up those deaths, the impact on those families, the impact on those communities, it's extraordinary and it's, and it's, it's devastating, frankly. When we think about the number of times the physicians in the emergency department, the police officers, the paramedics are engaged in resuscitating people, getting them Narcan, bringing them back, every one of those 40 deaths represents hundreds of interventions and really lost opportunities in many respects if we don't have programs like the one in Timmins by being able to get people access to immediate care, get them on appropriate medications so that they can have less addictive tendencies and be able to get them into mental health services. One of the challenges is the availability of mental health programs that are, that are meaningful, available, and timely so that we can help these people out of this crisis. Do you know why you had such a spike last year? Uh, our homelessness rate uh, rose dramatically uh, in Renfrew County. Uh, the number of Indigenous people that uh, suffered and died as a result uh, of opioid-related deaths was also significantly higher. Uh, and I think that um, from a health system perspective, if you have to come into institutional health care and wait and wait and wait, or have to leave your own hometown in many of the rural communities to move to where the mental health programs are, 
it puts you at greater risk. You start couch surfing, you start having new relationships with people who may not be providing you the best advice and maybe providing you increased access to drugs that are becoming increasingly complicated, complicated to treat. And it's not just opioids anymore, it's a cocktail of drugs that have um, uh, life-threatening consequences and I think are uh, eroding our communities and the fabric of our community like we've never seen before. David Savage, what does it look like in northwestern Ontario? Yeah, so unfortunately, Thunder Bay is the opioid overdose capital of Ontario. We've had the most deaths per capita across the province. Um, we've had an influx of drugs from Toronto and Ottawa that have come up into Thunder Bay. Um, I, on a regular basis, get calls from our, my paramedic colleagues asking for termination of resuscitation, that these patients have passed away and cannot be resuscitated. They come into the emergency department as an overdose, and I treat them, I treat their overdose, but we don't have the, we don't have the resources, the skills, like it's, the emergency department's there to resuscitate them. We really need to get them into the, into the opioid agonist, into the suboxone sort of programs. And, and it's really hard to get them out of the ER and into those uh, addictions medicine programs. So. Your Worship. Yeah, thank you very much. One of the pieces that's in our report is something that we're all very well aware of in this room. And that's through the uh, Ministry of the Solicitor General was the community safety and well-being plans. And they were uh, a long time in coming. Uh, we, through, through COVID, there were several extensions of our deadlines, but every municipality had to have a community, well, be, a community wellness and, and well-being plan in place a couple of years ago. The, and so this speaks to the, sort of the proactive piece and getting the service groups together in the police on identifying some of these issues. Having crisis teams in place was part of that. But they're not funded. And so dutifully, most of us did our, our, our plan and submitted it to the government, but saying, where is the money to implement it? And that has not yet to come. So when we talk about the, the types of, of examples that Mike's given and Dave's given, I believe, as a veteran police officer, that if those plans were in place and funded, that would be bringing the right people together in every community, and we could have an impact on this. Why do you think the foot, a little smattering of applause over here, okay. Why has the funding not followed yet? I can't answer that. Maybe the bear pit session will get Perhaps. some answers? Okay. Somebody asked that bear pit question. We shall see. Uh, okay, let's, we've kind of set the table here for so many of the challenges that you're dealing with, regardless of what part of the province you're in. I know you're all working on ideas and creative solutions to try to make some headway here. So. Let's share some of those right now. Uh, Your Worship, let's start with you again. You got a shortage of doctors. What are you doing to try to attract them and keep them? So the uh, formula or the algorithm for attracting doctors to rural Ontario, I would just say it's very hard to understand how it works, but what we do know is it is very restrictive. So the, the money that would be an incentive for a doctor to come to rural, it, it is not um, uh, wide-ranging. So one of our recommendations is, let's look at this algorithm so, so that municipalities of 10 and 15 and 20,000 population don't have to put money out of property taxes to attract a doctor. Let's make sure that what the provincial government says is in place works for rural Ontario. David, do we have or do we need something that goes something like this? If you want to go to Nossum and get an education as a doctor and stay in Northern Ontario for, let's say, seven years, 
will pay your tuition. Do we have that or do we need that? Would that help? That's uh, an interesting idea that, that doesn't exist currently. We do have some pathways. So NOSM's actually starting a rural generalist pathway where um, applicants will actually apply to it early and enter that sort of pathway to become a rural generalist family physicians. Um, but that's just in the works. That hasn't, I don't think it's been initiated yet or it's, or it's only in the first year or two of its, of its uh, application process. Uh, I think it would be helpful and beneficial. One of the challenges, though, is that you get these physicians to go to the communities. They're there for seven years. Once their seven years is up, they leave, right? So you're talking about a return of service type program. I think it's far better to go to the communities, recruit from the communities, recruit the nurses from these rural communities, and, and bring them, educate them, and then have them go back to where they, to where they know, right? Where are you from originally? Ottawa. You're from Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And you moved to Thunder Bay. Yes. <laughs> Shunya. <laughs> How come? I originally was in forestry, actually, <laughs> before I went into healthcare. And you know what? My wife is from Northern Ontario, so that's why I live there. So, I love it. Could we just replicate your experience numerous times over? Would that help solve this? <laughs> He's smiling, but not sure. Okay. Michael, how about for you? What, what kind of ideas do you see out there that could help keep and or retain doctors and nurses? Yeah, certainly, um, certainly there is a learn and stay grant. You know, the, the government has made some recent announcements, certainly with paramedics uh, and nursing in particular, to be able to uh, recoup their education costs should they provide a return of service. It's a shorter amount of time, less money arguably. Uh, however, that is in the works. And really, it's a, it's a lifeline, uh, especially in the north. The paramedic uh, learn and stay grant was only for northern communities whereas the nursing learn and stay grant was for rural uh, communities across Ontario. So, you know, I think you have to give credit where it's due and recognize that, that there are efforts in that regard. The problem, though, is we're seeing extraordinary retirement rates, early retirement rates. We're seeing burnout across the entire healthcare system. And, and you know, as... that is COVID? I think it's COVID in a number of different ways. I think, you know, the age of eligibility for retirement is one thing, and then the desire to retire is a different thing. I think COVID accelerated people's plans uh, significantly based upon uh, not only their quality of life, but I think the mental health uh, stressors on healthcare workers in particular uh, has been extraordinary through COVID. I also think that, you know, we do have not only an aging workforce, but we also have an aging population whose expectations are, are significantly higher than previous generations. Uh, and as my good doctor here to remind us, we're also keeping them alive longer. Uh, so, you know, there is a compounding effect, and we talked about the silver tsunami about a decade ago, uh, and we were having a little debate on the break there, you know, is it at the beach? And we said, no, I think we're still standing on the beach and watching it come at us. It is nowhere near the crisis that is before us, simply based upon the baby boom population and the drawdown of health services. So in many respects, we could not be worse off recognizing the pressures that are coming. It takes 10 years to grow a doctor. It takes three to four years to grow a paramedic. I don't know how long it takes to grow a mayor, but we're, we're lucky to have you here, Rob. A lifetime. A lifetime, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I, I think that's the challenge is, you know, we need some solid plans. We need some solid action today if we're going to solve this problem in seven to 10 years from now. Our, our issues now are now, and we really need to use the workforce we have to its maximum and support them in a different kind of way. Well, you've anticipated my follow-up for the mayor, which is even if you got something through the works of Queen's Park today, 
you don't see the payoff for seven to 10 years. What are you gonna do today? That's if you're only speaking physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's what Mike just alluded to, that there are people working in healthcare whose scope can be broadened, whether it's nurses, um, pharmacists, paramedics. Um, I'm hoping that, that Mike's gonna talk a little bit about the, what we call the VTAC program, and he'll explain that in a little bit more detail and allow the scopes to be widened. Um, nurse practitioners are, are extremely capable. Um, in, in my community, we have nurse practitioners. When I worked in the north, they had nurse practitioners. So I think that there are some things that we can do that don't take 10 years, that, um, uh, but it's not a focus. So where we need, I think Mike has said it, other people have said it today, we need to start now. We need to have an integrated plan. We know to, need to know what each other are doing. We, may, we need to fund it so that whether it's education, training, or oversight. So if we're enhancing the scope of people, there would need to be some training, some policies written in oversight. But there's a lot we can do now. VTAC. V hyphen TAC. What's that? It's, uh, it's actually a good news story that came out of the pandemic. And that was uh, in Renfrew County. That's the RC part of the VTAC, we had a virtual triage and assessment center. So instead of asking people to line up at the rink uh, to get swabbed, uh, we took a different approach. We asked medical receptionists to work from home. We asked primary care physicians or family doctors to find some time in their day to be able to accommodate some phone calls. Uh, And we asked the paramedics to staff clinics in the community. So with 30,000 people out of 100,000 who don't have a family doctor, I can assure you today that everyone in Renfrew County can call VTAC, a 1-800 number, talk to a medical receptionist, uh, identify what their issues are, get registered to talk to a family doctor that day. The family doctor completes the assessment over the phone or over video. And if someone needs to listen to your chest or take a blood sample uh, or look in your ears, they send you to a community paramedic-led clinic right in the community that day. The follow-up occurs with the family doc that day, you get your prescription that day, you get your referral that day, and that doc is responsible to follow up with you once your results have come back in. It's been an outrageous success. I was going to get your take on this, David. What do you, what do you think of the advisability of doing it this way? Yeah, so I, I, Mike and I were talking before the session, and I think it's great, to be honest with you. Um, having people go into the community, one of the things that I, I fear with virtual care is that is that the patient actually isn't seen. There's not a set of vitals done. You know, their, their abdomen isn't touched, their, their lungs aren't listened to. And that's one of my real challenges or issues with virtual care. But Mike's program has gotten over that. They actually have healthcare professionals go into the, into the homes and actually visit with these patients. And so I think, I think it's, it's wonderful. Well, one of the other issues with virtual care is that there wasn't always a billing code for a virtual visit. Has that been resolved? <laughs> I, I wouldn't know, I don't do virtual care. <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead, Michael. I, I can speak to you. If, uh, yeah, yeah there, there was a reset uh, last September, I believe, where the, the virtual billing codes got distilled down to, I think it's $15 per telephone visit and $20 per video visit, yeah. uh, which of course, uh, you'd need a lot of visits to be able to make up the salary of a physician based upon you know, what they would make otherwise working in the office, for example, or within a family health team. So, you know, we have worked with the government and they've helped us overcome that with some base funding. But I think the, the more important thing here is that this isn't a one and done virtual experience that either the good doctor here is worried about. This is truly an integrated model of care where we have access into primary care. It's a collaborative with our hospital partners. So no one is suffering in silence. No one is left behind and everybody can access primary care 
the same day, and that's really unheard of, and it's different than telehealth. It's different than 811. It's different than a lot of the other services that rightfully, I think we were concerned that there was a bit of a puppy mill factor going on. And I think we've overcome that by working with the health community, not despite the health community. And one of the things that you mentioned, Mike, is so important that the referrals happen as well. So if you don't have primary care, that's your access for a referral. And yet this uh, VTAC system um, takes that into consideration and resolves that as well. We've just got a few minutes left here. Can you, we've talked about this report, 22 recommendations. Some of them would work anywhere in the province. You know, primary care reform is something we need everywhere in the province of Ontario. Give us something that is really particular to rural Ontario we haven't talked about yet that this audience should know about. Oh, that we haven't talked about yet. To give me a minute there. <laughs> um, we, uh, we don't have the capacity in rural Ontario. Uh, the um, MMAH has talked about a complete community. And when they're talking about moving forward with housing, that housing should be a complete community that you have, uh, whether it's schools, pharmacies, um, uh, access to um, daycare, that should all be part of the community. And so we think for the government that they should maybe take a page out of the MMMH uh, writings, which is um, complete care means we have to have access to primary care in rural Ontario, period. Follow up on that? Yeah, so, so two points. One, as a pitch for Northern Ontario, we need more than 380 physicians, and more than 60% of those are family physicians, and a large percentage of those would be in rural communities. The other thing is that rural, rural family physicians do way more or far more than urban family physicians. And this is, one of, well, this is one of the challenges. So as an example, five family physicians in an urban center may see 2,000 patients in their, in their year, right? So that's 10,000 patients that have a family physician. You go to a rural community, 10,000 pa people in that rural community need far more than five physicians. They may need 10 or 15 family physicians. Why? Because the physicians are working in the emergency department. They're seeing patients in the hospital, palliative care, chronic disease. They're doing all sorts of things. They may be working in the operating room. And so a family physician is not a family physician is not a family physician. Rural, rural generalist family physicians are, are, are a different type of physician. Michael, one recommendation we haven't talked about so far that you think we need to know about? Well, I, I, I'd like to bring it back to the social determinants of health in our, in our most vulnerable population. And, and I think it's critically important to recognize that mental health and addictions right now is extraordinarily present. It's high. And they're the most vulnerable people in our community who don't have a voice. Right? For many years, we talked about older adults, complex chronic disease. Our community paramedic program and home and community care partners and hospitals have done a great job of wraparound care. I think we really need to focus on those issues of, of sustainable housing, of uh, providing good access to primary care, uh, but also thinking about our policies and how we become the voice as municipal leaders for those who can't speak for themselves. And I think that you know, the government's uh, role in terms of setting policy is critically important. It needs to be as nimble as the challenges that confront municipalities. But I think we also need to think about you know, who's paying for this. And I think that the province has a critically important role at a policy level, but more importantly, I would suggest that they allow great ideas to come out of the municipalities and to support those both with policy and with funding so that we can scope, spread, and scale those innovative practices coming out of rural municipalities and find new ways of tackling new problems, not finding excuses for why we aren't able to be nimble enough or accountable enough to the people that we're serving. 
We're down to our last minute here. I want to give your worship the last word. You know, th there may be a sense out there that, that in the main, things actually improve year by year by year by year. Every now and then, a retreat in some areas, but basically the system is getting better. That may be a thought in some areas. What would you like to tell us about what the reality on the ground is? So the reality in rural Ontario is it's getting worse every year. Our doctors are leaving rural Ontario uh, four times faster than in urban centers. So that means each year we, use, we are losing 12% more of our doctors. Um, the um, access to mental health is almost non-existent in rural Ontario. And if it is available, then there's a travel burden. And in order to go from uh, the, the small um, villages and, and uh, towns to the doctor, we have no transportation. So it's you have to find a friend to drive you or a member of the family. Um, and as, as Mike just said, the um, homelessness and the mental health issues have exploded in rural Ontario. So we're losing our doctors. We're losing access to emergency departments. Last year and uh, in 22, there were over 600 ED closures each year in rural Ontario. So I don't think it's getting better. But I think what we had to do was provide the data so that, because we want to work with ministry, but we wanted to provide the data so that they know rural is different and we need to work together to find solutions. David, they're gonna give me the hook in 20 seconds. 20 seconds, so I just wanna give a personal experience. A good friend of mine is right now, as we speak, at Toronto General Hospital, having a liver transplant. Oof. Yeah, young woman, she has her partner and her father there. They're in Toronto for a whole month of care. Where's she from? Thunder Bay. 15, ten dollars to $15,000 in expenses. The Northern Ontario Health Travel Grant covers about 500 or 1,000 of that. That's it. So that's the travel burden, that's the cost burden to people who live in northern and rural communities to access specialized care. Could you do that up north if you had to? No, and, and I, I'm not advocating that we have do liver transplants in Toronto. I'm just advocating that this is a disparity and this is, this is a, a lack of, of funding and, and we need to retro, uh, fix it. I know this audience wants to join me in thanking these three for a really smart discussion here today at Roma. Thank you very much, you three. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.